How many of you joined us over the last seven or eight weeks as we did a series called This Might Get Awkward? Did you shoot, shoot your hand up there? Um, over the course of that series, I preached the three most difficult sermons of my entire life, three most difficult I've ever had to preach. Uh, mental health, sexual identity, and science in the Bible, not necessarily in that order. So uh, that series just caused a great deal of stress for me, and um, those sermons were really, really difficult, very, very difficult, lots of sleepless nights. Uh, and so I have really great news this morning. Uh, this might get awkward is over. <laughs> This is great news for me. The series is called Follow. My vote was to call this series, It's Not Going to Get That Awkward. Um, or Thank God This Might Get Awkward is Over. That's what I voted for, but they said, no, we got to call it something different. You ever had somebody in your life say, man, I, I don't think this is what I signed up for. You ever hear that phrase before? You know, somebody shows up at some event or something, and it's difficult, it's challenging, whatever. I'm like, man, I didn't sign up for this. There's a lot of misconceptions out there in the world about what Jesus is asking us to, quote, sign up for. I mean, people say that, you know, sorry, I've got honey on my hands. Um, I would love to blame my kid, uh, but it's not. I just spilled honey on myself because uh, I, I had a tea with honey in it because you can hear my rasp in my throat, right? Like, I don't, I don't feel very good, so somebody, I don't feel very well. Uh, so somebody went and got me a Starbucks, got me a tea with honey on it, and I s- spilled honey all over myself. I spilled coffee on myself this morning. I'm just a real mess of a person. That's the moral, moral of this story. So here's the deal. Out in culture today, you hear people say stuff like, you know, Jesus is asking us to invite him into our hearts, which is kind of an odd thing to say, and even kind of an odd word picture. And I don't have any problem with the language. What I have an issue with is kind of what it seems to reflect. And what it seems to reflect is kind of a whitewashed version of, a sanitized version of, a toothless version of what Jesus is really calling us to, what he's calling us to sign up for, so to speak. You know, you hear people out there say, you know, I, I, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. I just want to thank Jesus. He's my personal Lord and Savior. Again, I don't have any problem with people that use that language. But it seems to suggest that Jesus is not everyone else's Lord too. And the reality is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he's not just your personal Lord, but he's everybody else's too, whether they like it or not. So what I wanted to do in this series, really, to the best of my ability, is revisit and re-examine what Jesus is really calling us to sign up for. What's he inviting us to? As one author put it, what is he demanding of us? Because it really is is an imperative. It's not a suggestion or maybe if you get some time. And so what I want to do over the next five weeks is talk about that call and talk about what it means. And, and where we're going to start is in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't know where Matthew is, your Bible is divided into two kind of big parts. The Old Testament or the Old Covenant, that's the stuff that happened before Jesus came around. And that's about the first two-thirds of your Bible. The next third of your Bible is the New Testament or New Covenant. And Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. So if you've never picked up a Bible before, get yourself about two-thirds of the way into it and you'd be right around Matthew. 
In the New Testament, the New Testament starts off with four books. They're called short versions, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Essentially, they're biographies of the life of Jesus. And each of those biographies of the life of Jesus is written from a different perspective. John's perspective, Luke's perspective, Mark's perspective, and Matthew's perspective. Matthew, just like the other books in the scripture, uh, editors, not the original authors, but editors, divided those books up into chapters and verses just to help us navigate them a little bit better. Thank you very much. So So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and try to examine and understand the call of Christ. Before we read the scripture, I'd like for us to pray together. (coughs) Holy Spirit of God, would you speak to us, please? Would you shape and form and change, convict and courage, bring hope, bring clarity? Jesus, with your Bible, with your words recorded in Scripture, we affirm that you spoke the truth, and the Holy Spirit is here to remind us of it and bring it to mind. So bring to mind the truth so that we may walk in it today. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus begins his public ministry, and while he was doing that, uh, by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Why? For they were fishermen. Makes sense. And he said to them, what? Follow me. Not ask me into your heart. Follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. And what did they do? They followed him. And how quickly did they do it? Immediately. They left their nets and followed him. And then he saw, uh, going out from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, uh, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Eventually, these two brothers, James and John, would be called the sons of thunder. That was not a compliment. Uh, Mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat. And their father <laughs> and followed him. <laughs> I just think of what my dad would do to me. <laughs> if we were in the middle of a task, right? This is a family business. This is a family, this is the way they feed themselves and their family. And, and then Zebedee, their father, would eventually pass this on to James and John. That was the plan, and that's how they fed, fed their family and made their money. And Jesus goes, follow me. And they go, okay. You know, I could just hear Zebedee going, hey, like we're in the middle of something here. But they didn't. Immediately, they left their nuts and they did what? They followed him. Hence the reason we've titled this series, Follow. This is the call of Christ. This is the invitation that he extended to the very first followers. This is the invitation that he has extended to followers throughout the centuries. This is the invitation, the call that he extends to you and to me to follow him. And we have a lot of words these days for people who follow Jesus. Some people call them disciples. Some people call them Christians. Some people call them Christ followers, all sorts of different things. And that all of those different words kind of are pregnant with different kinds of meanings, right? Different kinds of baggage. So what I want to do this morning is to help us understand this call of Christ in its original context, because in first century Jewish uh, 
culture in Palestine, when people heard that invitation, follow me, it brought very specific things to mind. And so in its original context, I want us to understand this call to follow Christ specifically in two ways. One, in the context of first century rabbinic culture. We're going to talk about what rabbis are and what they did and who they were, etc. And that understanding will help bring light and color to that invitation to follow Jesus. Second, I want to understand this call in the midst of or in the context of Jesus' own personal life and ministry. Because when he's inviting us to follow him, he's inviting us to emulate his life and his ministry. So let's start here with first century rabbinic culture. The term rabbi is used of Jesus in the New Testament. Direct translation, a little bit loose, it means teacher. You may have heard people called rabbi before, and in the Jewish community we still have rabbis today. And back then, that rabbi was a little bit something different. Uh, The term itself is a little bit anachronistic because it didn't become an official office until after the temple was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed in AD 70. However, in Jesus' time and in Jesus' place, there were people who were called rabbi. And these rabbis were kind of the epitome in many ways of Jewish spiritual and religious culture. And Matthew wants to locate his gospel specifically in the context of that Jewish culture. See, John's gospel is a little bit for Christians who need a little bit of a pick-me-up and a reminder. Luke's gospel is written directly to a man named Theophilus. Side note, if you're pregnant and you're having a child, Theophilus is a great option. Written specifically to a man named Theophilus. Mark is written to Gentiles, uh, Gentiles and Greek speakers. And Matthew is written to Jews. Listen to how Jewish Matthew's gospel is. This is how he starts. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. This is like a who's who of Judaism. These are the patriarchs. Matthew is a name dropper here. Not a bad way, but he's locating his story of Jesus really firmly within the context of first century Judaism. So when Jesus comes along and he begins to take on the posture of a rabbi, we have to understand that in Jewish culture, rabbis were just short of venerated. They were respected. They were looked to to kind of judge between people and between situations and circumstances. And, and there wasn't really, you know, courts that you could go to necessarily in, in this, uh, the way that we would talk about that in a modern context. And so rabbis interpreted the law. The law was already recorded, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets. But people would come to these rabbis and they would say, Okay, okay, look, we know what the law says, but in this specific context, what does it mean? How do we apply it? How do we work through it? (coughs) And there wasn't a ton of rabbis out there, at least people that were recognized as such. And so these rabbis became a little bit of itinerant preachers. They would go from city to city and they would interpret the law. And as they went from city to city, what they would do is they would bring people along with them who were kind of their followers who wanted to be just like them. These young men were called the Talmudim. Called the Talmudim. This is a Hebrew word. It's plural, Talmudim. 
And listen to this. Young men in Jewish culture, and I find this fascinating. Stick with me here. By age five, because of the spiritual and religious training that they had, they had the first five books of the Old Testament completely memorized. At age five, like honestly, how many of you have, I would say, I've not even read the book of Numbers, or once I tried, and I got about two chapters in, I thought, I have no idea what this is. Be honest with me. One, two, three, throw your hand up. There you go. And five-year-olds had it memorized. Shame on you people for that. Five-year-olds had it memorized. I mean, this was ingrained in their hearts and souls and culture, and every young Jewish male would say, all I ever want to do with my life is go follow a rabbi. That was a huge deal. I want to be a Talmudim. And so I devote myself to memorizing the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. I devote myself to learning about the prophets. And they had these milestones as they went along in their young lives, all aimed towards, all flowing into this coming-of-age ceremony called a bar mitzvah that you probably have heard of when they were 13. And at that point... They would either go follow a rabbi or they would get a snoop jobby job. Those were their options. And everybody wanted to follow a rabbi. Everybody wanted to follow a rabbi. And if you didn't get picked, you have to get some people like the snoop jobby job comment. Other people didn't. You have to get a job. Go make money. Go be a fisherman. Go work for Ikea, whatever it is they did in the first century. I don't know what it was, but they got to go get a job, okay? Now, here's the thing about the Talmudim. The Talmudim, in order to get picked to be a Talmudim, you had to be a standout. You had to be a star. Not everybody got picked to be a Talmudim. So I know that in, in Canada, you know, you, did you, you grew up playing shinny. You know what shinny is? It's like, it's like practice hockey. You know what hockey is? It's that Wackles board where it's got to be super cold and everybody straps really sharp things to their feet and runs around on ice for a little while. And they call shinny, scrimmage hockey, they call it shinny because you may not have your shinnies by the time this thing is over, all right? That's what they call it shinny. At the beginning of shinny, Tim Graves, you know what, the, you know what happens. At the beginning of shinny, they put everybody's sticks in the middle, right? And one person, probably you, closes their eyes, and they take a stick and throw it here, 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 until they figure out which sticks are on each side of the ice. And these sticks over here, that's one team. And then these sticks over here, that's the other team. And you know what? It's very Canadian. Watch this. Because everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play shinny. And nobody knows who's a better hockey player, who's a worse hockey player. Just, you know, arbitrarily, whatever stick, whatever side of the ice your stick ended up on. See, in the U.S., we don't do it that way. We make sure people know how valuable they are. <laughs> we choose two captains, and those two captains pick. I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you. And there's always, like, the last kid left, right? Like, I don't know about hockey. That's me, okay? I don't know about hockey. Okay, so this may be the only thing that the United States has in common with first century Jewish culture, all right? Maybe the only thing, but here's the deal. With the Talmudim, they long to get picked. So much so that rabbis, more often than not, did not have to go to a Talmudim and go, follow me. 
In fact, it was an honor. It was an honor for a Talmudim to be selected and invited by a rabbi. It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. Because more often than not, these little boys are just going around to rabbis and go, can I follow you? Can I follow you? I want to follow you. Can I be you? I want to be you. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to be you. And when they followed the rabbi, they didn't just learn from the rabbi. They copied every single thing the rabbi did. Where'd you get those sandals? I'm going to go buy sandals like that. Where'd you get that tunic? I'm going to go buy a tunic like that. Your hair, you're growing out your hair now? I'm going to start growing out my hair. Well, what do you think of this law? That's what I think. What do you think of that law? That's what I think. How do you talk? What kind of accent? I'm going to copy your accent. Everything they did, they would copy. In other words, here's the distinction. It's not as if Jesus calls these men to be learners because students want to learn from a teacher. Talmudim want to be the rabbi. By the time Jesus' disciples, his followers, his Talmudim, by the time they had been walking with him for a little while, you would have looked at them and go, I'm not sure which one is which here. I mean, they all look and think and act the same way. They feel the same way. They all just walk around after Jesus and go, what is it that you think? What is it that you think? What is it that you think? And how can I emulate you? How can I be you? And they began to lose their old identity and regain a new identity in their rabbi. I don't know that we have like a good illustration in modernity to help us wrap our mind around what it might look like to be a Talmudim. But I found one that maybe is pretty close. I watched a documentary recently, and the documentary was about the making of a film called Man in the Moon. Has anybody ever seen that movie, Man in the Moon? Okay, Man in the Moon is about Andy Kaufman. For those of you who know who Andy Kaufman is, uh, you're dating yourself. So uh, Andy Kaufman was in Taxi as Latka. He was in, on Saturday Night Live. And Andy Kaufman was a comedian. He was a very, very peculiar comedian. Uh, for Andy Kaufman, there was no real distinct line between reality and fiction. Andy Kaufman didn't just kind of become a character and do his thing and then walk away and live his own life. His whole life was this production. He was a very, very strange individual. At times, alienating himself from his family. He seemed to be a kind man, but definitely a peculiar man. Andy Kaufman had a daughter that he was estranged from because of how peculiar he was. His family had a difficult time engaging with him because of how peculiar he was. But inside, they knew he was just a, a really sweet soul. Andy Kaufman was so odd that he once, and this is real, he was a very, like, you know, he, he was not a, like a beefy guy. He was kind of a, a wimpy kind of guy. You know, the kind of guy that would get picked last for, you know, I, I hope we're playing shinny because that means I get to be on a team, all right? Kind of a wimpy guy. And he engaged in, in uh, world wrestling, like, like professional wrestling, and taunted a guy named Jerry Lawler, who is like this big, beefy man. And Jerry Lawler just knocked him the heck out. And you know why? Because Andy Kaufman thought that'd be funny. Doesn't that just seem odd to you? Okay, so here's what happens. They make a movie about Andy Kaufman. And they ask Jim Carrey to play Andy Kaufman. How many of you know who Jim Carrey is? Good. Okay, and then the three people knew who Andy Kaufman was. Everybody else knows who Jim Carrey is. Okay, good. So Jim Carrey didn't just play the character. He became Andy Kaufman. 
He, he, he looked at Andy Kaufman's hair and he did his hair that way. He, he looked at Andy Kaufman's clothes and he did his clothes that way. He, he was Andy Kaufman on screen and off screen. The whole documentary uh, documents this entire thing. So much so that when they brought Andy Kaufman's parents onto set, they wept because they saw their son. And Jim Carrey didn't talk to them as Jim Carrey. He talked to them as Andy Kaufman. When they, go lo- when they went and located uh, Jim K- or Andy Kaufman's estranged daughter and brought her onto set, uh, Andy Kaufman, Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman, was able to have an hour, hour and a half conversation with his estranged daughter and work some things out. And when they asked, Andy, or they asked Jim Carrey after the fact, hey, like, what was that conversation like? He said, well, you know, Andy had a great opportunity to work some things out with his estranged daughter. I mean, he became Andy Kaufman for this role. He lost Jim Carrey. Look what Jim Carrey actually says about this. He says, I broke a couple times on weekends and stuff. That means broke character. But pretty much from when I woke up to when I went to bed, the choices were all his. He said there were times when he heard this voice in the back of his head saying, you can't do that. You can't say that. He said that was Jim's voice. And I did it anyway or I said it anyway because I gave myself entirely to Andy Kaufman. So much so, watch, when the movie wrapped and they finished it, it was done filming, look what Jim Carrey said. He said, when it was over, I couldn't remember who I was anymore. I mean, he struggled. Jim Carrey really struggled to regain his own identity. See, I know it's a squirrely example. I know it's a little odd. But this is what Jesus is inviting us to do. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and say that word with me, follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake would find it. He's saying, look, you give up you, your agenda, your passions, your definition of right and wrong. You give up your rights. You give up that pressing inside of you to succeed and to overtake. You give up that thing that says, I must be heard You give that all up and you become a Talmudin. The first uh, time the Christians were called Christians was in Antioch. It was a derogatory term. Little Christs. You lose this thing. You give it up and you take your life and submit it entirely to the authority of the rabbi. This is Jesus' invitation to his first disciples. His Talmudim. And what did they do? Immediately they left their nuts and followed him. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And for me, this is where Jesus' life and ministry becomes critical for us to understand. Because again, students want to learn from the teacher. Talmudim want to be the rabbi. So when it comes to Jesus' life and ministry, it's critical for us to understand not just you know, what he wore, because that's not what he's calling us to, or what he ate. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to some core changes in our own hearts. And that's what his life and ministry reflect. And now Matthew's gospel, the way it's structured, actually helps us to understand what it is that Jesus is calling us to when he says, follow me. Here's why. Look up here on the screen. (coughs) In Matthew's gospel, 
This invitation in Matthew chapter 4 to follow Jesus is kind of the meat of a sandwich here. You, you with me? You with me? And in chronological order, first Jesus is baptized. This is after like all the birth narrative and genealogy and all that stuff in terms of his adult life and ministry. First he's baptized. Then he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Then he calls his disciples, and then immediately he launches into a sermon that you might be familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. So here is what Matthew is saying to us, and here is what Jesus' life is reflecting. When I say follow me, Jesus says, you need to follow me in my baptism, in the way I respond to temptation, and in my teaching. That's what I'm calling you to do, to follow me in those specific areas. So we're going to go through each of those and understand what's going on in the life of Jesus so that we can know specifically what it means to follow him. First is his baptism. Here's what happens. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. Jesus is going to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Stop there. Here's what's happening. Jesus was with sin or without sin? Without sin, right? And John, the Baptist, right? He baptized so many people, he was called John the Baptist. That's a lot of people. My name should be Luke the Timbit Eater because I eat so many Timbits. I love Timbits so much. Do, do you not love Timbits as much as I do? I'm so glad I live in Canada. So good, so good. It really has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Okay, so John's baptism, the scripture says, John's baptism was for, the, was for repentance and forgiveness of sin. But Jesus doesn't need that because he never sinned. So why is he getting baptized? Great question. John the baptizer asks the same thing. Why are you here? Go back one. Why are you here? Why did you come to me? Jesus' answer is this. I came so it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented to baptize Jesus, and Jesus was baptized. Subsequent to baptism, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and then from that time on, he began to preach the kingdom of God, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So when it comes to Jesus' baptism, it's not a baptism for forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism that does two things. One is it fulfills all righteousness, that it fulfills all of his requirements as the Son of Man. And two, it launches Jesus on his mission. It launches Jesus into his public ministry, declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. I love the way the message says it. He says that Jesus preached this way. He picked up where John left off. Change your life. God's kingdom is here. See, Jesus' baptism was a catalyst for mission. Jesus' baptism was the beginning of, the starting point of. It was the fuse so that his mission expanded, the fuse that got lit so his mission expanded to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus calls us to be baptized, he's calling us to do a couple of things. One is he's calling us to the physical act of baptism. So if you have not followed in Jesus' footsteps in that way, and you call yourself a Christ follower, we would invite you to be baptized. I'm actually going to give you some information on that in here just a couple seconds. But it's also calling the Talmudim to follow Jesus on mission. When Jesus gets baptized and immediately calls his followers, he's saying, join me on mission. Join me in my desire. Join me in my goal. Join me in my life quest to bring the kingdom of God where the kingdom of God 
has not manifested itself quite yet. Join me in bringing life where there is no life. Join me in facilitating reconciled relationships where there have been ruptures. Join me in bringing good news to the poor. Join me in binding up the brokenhearted. Join me in healing those who are sick in any different kind of way. Join me in bringing the kingdom of God to the planet. This is why Jesus prays. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, join me on this mission. Side note real quickly, just so you have a, even a, a handle to grab onto here. If you want to be baptized, we have a baptism class coming up. It starts next weekend, November 4th, 11th, and 18th. And we'll baptize you on November 25th. Dave will baptize you, apparently, because that's what's in the picture here. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Listen, if you've not followed in Jesus' footsteps in that way, he's calling you to. As his Talmudim, if you call yourself a Christ follower, to be baptized, publicly declare what has already happened internally and continue on the mission that Jesus has called you to. Jump online at babyglenn.org. You can RSVP there. But the Talmudim followed Jesus on his mission. Second, We've got to look at the temptation of Christ, temptation of Christ. Because, again, what happens is Jesus is baptized. Then he's led in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Then he calls his disciples to follow him. So let's take a look at the three ways that Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, a couple of things. This is, this is like the most obvious statement in all of Scripture, Right? He hasn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Thank you, Matthew, for pointing that out. We wouldn't have known that unless you did. That's sarcasm, by the way. Second, isn't it interesting how sometimes temptation comes your way when you're physically worn out? When you're physically exhausted? Some of you get tempted. Some of us get tempted to lash out at people when we haven't eaten in a while. There's a word for that. What is it? Hangry, that's right, you get hangry. Or when you're wore out, when you're tired. And this is when the tempter comes to Jesus, when he's wore out and physically is exhausted. And the tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Would have been a temptation. He hadn't eaten in 40 days, okay? But he answered Jesus, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, what he's telling Satan is, I am not going to depend on myself to meet my own needs, although I could meet my own needs. I am not going to meet a legitimate need in an ill legitimate way. I'm not going to cut corners. I'm going to trust God and depend on my heavenly father. He's in control here, not you, not me. Temptation number two. Uh, the devil took him to the holy city. This is up in Jerusalem on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Why? Because it is written in the Old Testament, <coughs> he, that's God, will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is this is classic trick for the devil, classic trick. He takes scripture and he twists it. He takes actual words of God and he shifts them and changes them and manipulates them just a little bit for his own purpose. For example, Genesis chapter 3. Did God really tell you you can't eat of any fruit in the garden? No, 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 God didn't say that. He said don't eat that fruit. 
See, Satan twists it just a little bit. See, he's leveraging Scripture on his own behalf. And he's saying, in the Old Testament, it says the, the, the angels would, if you fell down from here, if you threw yourself down, the angels would grab you and you wouldn't hit the ground. And Jesus looks at Satan and he says, look, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, God has already passed the test of being God. He is sovereign. He is in control. He's got everything under his power. Nothing slips through his providential fingers. I don't need to test him. Third temptation, Satan says to Jesus, he took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. We got two problems here. One, they're not his to give, right? It's like me saying to you, I will give you a million dollars. I don't have it. I don't have it to give. It's not mine. Or I'll give you somebody else's bank account. It's like, that's not your bank account to give. Second problem is this, and this is what I think may, may have made it extraordinarily tempting for Jesus, is that eventually he will have all the kingdoms of the world. What Satan is inviting him to do is bypass the cross. What Satan is tempting him to do is bypass suffering. And I'll give you all the t t kingdoms of the world. You ever been in that position before, by the way? Where something that you feel like is on the horizon for you and in the future for you, something you maybe even feel like God is calling you to, and you feel like you need to press it in terms of timing, bypass suffering. This is the temptation of Christ. But the condition is this, you got to fall down and worship me. That's what Satan says. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is a broad kind of brushstroke generalization of the temptation of Jesus, and specifically his responses to Satan's three temptations, is that Jesus' temptation was a spectacle of God's sovereignty. I don't need to turn those stones to bread. God's in control. He's sovereign. I don't need to prove myself or prove God to you. He's already in control. He's sovereign. I don't need to hit the accelerator pedal and bypass suffering. I can trust God with my future and with the timing because he is sovereign. So what Jesus is inviting the Talmudim to do uh, then is to follow him in his dependence upon God's sovereignty. He's inviting the Talmudim. Look, the way you respond to temptation is A, by quoting scripture, and B, by saying, God's in control. God's in control of my reputation. God's in control of my family. God's in control of my marital status. God's in control of my finances. God's in control. I don't have to press. I don't have to wiggle and squirm and push back. I don't have to cut corners. I don't have to leverage things. I don't have to fight for my own rights. I don't have to fight for my own position. God is in control, and I don't want that job. And so Jesus says to his Talmudim, he says, come follow me in learning what it means to be completely dependent upon our Heavenly Father. The Talmudim joined God, or joined Jesus in his mission. They join Jesus in his dependence upon the Father. Remember, baptism, then temptation, then the call of Christ to follow him. And then he launches into the couple, three of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture as if there's bad ones <clears throat> other than numbers. No, so I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. The Sermon on the Mount. And if you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins this way. Blessed 
modern translation, happy are the poor in spirit. Huh? Happy are those who mourn. What? Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who make peace. Jesus says, I am not a king who came to be served, but to serve. And not just serve, but give my life as a ransom for many. He enters into the Roman Empire where people lorded it over one another. Where violence was king. Where money was king. Where power and prestige were king. And he comes in riding on the foal of a donkey born in a manger in humble circumstances and he completely flips what it means to be king upside down. And so Jesus invites his Talmudim to follow him in his upside down kingdom. Instead of being the strong and those who are pushy, be the meek. Instead of being those who cause rupture and fracture in our world, be a peacemaker. Instead of those who try to put on a happy face and do whatever it takes to bring happiness into their life, grieve with God's heart. Be a mourner who comes alongside those who are struggling because that is what happiness looks like in the kingdom of God. And you're going, wait, mourning and happiness, are those the same thing? No, they're not. But in the upside down kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, mourning leads to happiness because our hearts now are connected with with one another in ways they never would have been. Man, if that's not contrary to what culture says, I don't know what is. I mean, I said some tough stuff, I think, in the This Might Get Awkward series. I said some tough stuff. But to join Jesus in his upside-down kingdom, boy, oh boy, that is not easy. That is so countercultural. But this is what Talmudim do. This is the call of Christ. To join him in his mission. To join him in his total and complete dependence upon the Father. And to join him in moving this upside down kingdom forward. This word Talmudim, I think I mentioned this, has maybe been translated a whole bunch of different ways. Christian, Christ follower, whatever. Best translation, I think, is disciple. I know it feels like a little, you know, inside baseball language. It feels like a little bit of jargon or nomenclature that maybe is misunderstood by the outside world. But I think that word disciple is the best possible word. It's not a learner. It's someone who emulates Jesus and goes, I just want to be like you. Now, here's the wild part, too. In, in first century rabbinic culture, there would be a time where all these little Talmudim, all these little ducklings... <laughs> Following their rabbi. Where'd you get those sandals? Where'd you get that tunic? What can I do? How can I be more like you? How can I be more like you? I'm not just trying to learn from you. I'm just trying to be you. There would be a time where the rabbi would turn and look at them and go, you got it. You got it. Now, now, you are a rabbi. You go call other Talmudim. You go make disciples of your own. Hence the reason why Matthew's gospel is sandwiched by these two situations. One is the calling of the first disciples. And that calling of the first disciples is in the context of Jesus' baptism, temptation, and his teaching. 
and we know what it means to follow Jesus. And these are the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's all authority. I've got it all. It's all mine. All authority has been heaven and heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. <clears throat> Love it. Why? There, therefore, what is it therefore? Remember, it's therefore to point us back here. All authority has been given to me. Uh, we use this word com- or an invitation sometimes, like Jesus has an invitation for you, really as a call, a demand. Jesus wasn't very Canadian in this way. You know, it's a suggestion. Perhaps you could consider, you know, one option would be, no, 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 this is not Jesus. Jesus says, now you go, Talmudim. Go, therefore, and make other little Talmudim, disciples of all nations, Christ followers, not people who want to be you, but people who want to be the capital R, Rabbi. Those who want to follow after him. And what is it that we call them to do first? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Joining him on his mission. And second, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I think when we talk about this, the last thing I'll say and we'll be done. I think we talk about this. We talk about disciples making disciples, right? Have you ever heard that term before? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. Disciples that make disciples. That's right. (coughs) That's what God is calling us to. Calling us to be a disciple that makes disciples. Disciples who make disciples. And when we start to understand what it means to make a disciple, we go to somebody who has never met Jesus before, never experienced Jesus before. We live out a life in front of them that's that's a reflection of the heart of Christ. And we share a verbal witness with them. We talk to them about God's grand redemptive plan, when we invite them to respond to the call of Christ, perhaps it's through a church service, perhaps it's sharing a verbal witness about Jesus, and we talk about this, even sharing a verbal witness about Jesus. You're going to tell somebody you're a Christ follower and you should repent and be saved too. And even I, even if I, even as I say that, it like causes many of you anxiety, right? Like to tell someone who doesn't know Jesus, I would like to tell you about my relationship with Jesus. It's like, I think I'm going to vomit here because I'm so nervous about that, and it's seems like such a huge task and it causes stress and and oh my gosh can I do that and Jesus goes no that's the great news no you can't this is why Jesus says surely I'm with you always even till the end of the age in other words but I can people tell me sometimes like I just don't feel so close to God I feel like God is far from me Are you making disciples? Because this promise here that he's with us always to the end of the age is attached to disciple makers. Those those things are inextricably bound. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the postures and practices of what it looks like to be a Talmudim, to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple in this day and age in modernity. We hope that you join with us as we journey through just these four ideas that we see in the early church of living out the call of Christ to follow him. One real quick thing before we go, and and I'm going to pray and we're going to close in song. Uh, We talked about a mental health seminar that's right around the corner. It's actually after service next week. We're not sure where it's going to be yet because we need to know if you're coming. 
Uh, I spoke on mental health a couple weeks ago, even talked about my own journey through mental illness, and we had a lot of folks that responded to that. So what we want to do is help you. It was just kind of a little workshop, an informational session with uh, you know, resources and treatment plans and all that kind of stuff uh, taught by a couple of really great professional counselors. So here's the deal. If you still have that Connect card in your hand, grab it and jot your email down. If you're new with us or if you're not yet on our mailing list, jot your email down and drop it in the offering bag when it comes by here in a few minutes after this uh, next song because we will put you on our mailing list and we'll send out an email tomorrow so that you can click an RSVP for that mental health seminar if you're planning on going. If you don't do that and, you're, and you don't RSVP, you don't get to eat when you come. Ha, ha, ha. You don't get to eat when you come. No, I'm totally kidding. But we just want to know how much food to have, how much material to have, all that kind of stuff because we want to walk with you in whatever journey you might be going through in terms of mental health. Let's pray together and we'll close. God, thank you for the crystal clarity that you provide when you call us to be your Talmudim. Not this that we learn from you, but that we become like you, that we follow you, so that our lives are changed, so that the old us is crucified, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me, and the life I live now, I live in faith, and the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. God, may we die to ourselves a little more every day, become more alive than we ever thought we could be in you, because we walk as your disciples. We declare now, God, that you, Jesus, specifically, you are the way and the truth and the life as we close in worship. Thank you for speaking today, oh God, in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. Stand, sing together.